Could you open up to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and 5? We are continuing in our summer series on the book of Deuteronomy, Discovering Deuteronomy. Somebody asked me last week, what is the strategy? Because it seems like we're jumping all over the place in Deuteronomy. And I said, it's really simple. We as a staff are picking and choosing very interesting passages in Deuteronomy, sort of like finding old artifacts from the past that have been buried under centuries of dirt, uncovering them and then applying them to our lives. Like we said the first, the first message, we're looking for, as Jeremiah said, the ancient paths that restore the soul. That's the point. Ancient paths. But if you were to drill down in the book of Deuteronomy and ask what is it about, it centers on one subject. Really, it's about one topic. But this topic is the biggest, baddest, scariest, precarious and most confounding topic in all the Bible. And I'm always scared to talk about it because I'll tell you, mountains of theology books have been written about this single topic. Denominations are formed and argued about because of this topic. Paul the Apostle was stoned because of this topic. And Jesus was really brought to the cross by the Pharisees themselves because of this topic. I'd like to say this topic is so big, it's like eating an elephant. And you know how to eat an elephant, don't you? One small bite at a time. So we are going to try to tackle this, take delicious bites, throw some salt on it, like some nice stories, and then it, hopefully you can swallow this down and it will make sense. But before we get to the topic, I need to first address the main problem that the human condition has so this topic won't be so confusing and combustible. If you don't understand what is wrong with you, because something is dreadfully wrong with you, you won't be able to process this topic. So the first question is, what is wrong with us? Something dwells beneath the surface. I want you to go to John chapter 2 a second. John chapter 2. Jesus says something in John that is quite disturbing. And I'll put it up here. John chapter 2 verses 24 and 25. He's talking to the Pharisees. It's almost time for Passover. The Pharisees are talking about the law. And then Jesus says to them in verse 24, or he says about them, Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. What does he mean by that? Well, first of all, it means that Jesus can see into every heart, and you can't. You can't even necessarily see properly into your own heart. More specifically, he knows that some belief out there, you can profess that you believe, but some belief isn't saving belief. Some belief is false. It's fake. How can that be? Well, go to chapter 5, verse 44, and he gives us the reason why. Chapter 5, verse 44. Jesus is talking again to the Pharisees, and he says, How can you believe 
meaning this is causing you not to believe. What is? How can you believe since you accept glory from one another but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? What is he saying here? He is saying deep down inside what Jesus can see and no one else can is for most people we love the glory of others. We want other people to think we are the star of the show. That we're important. We're amazing. We can do it on our own. Theologians say egotism, where I'm selfish and I'm all about self-love, egotism is our most natural theology. A fancy term for egotism is Pelagianism. And I say that for the theologians who think now they're impressed by me. So Pelagianism is the belief that we think we have it in our power to be good, to be heavenly good, to be holy and righteous and blameless, because sin and pride that dwells deep down within us has a nasty habit of thinking that our work can substitute for Christ's work. That we really think we can do it. We want people to notice us. And rejoice in how good we are. And that's what Jesus means by receiving glory from one another. This is the monster that dwells beneath. And until we put to death this monster. This pernicious combination of sin that leads to pride. We won't trust in God fully. Because we're still leaning on ourselves. And this separates us from the life of God. And we all have it. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Meaning it's crafty and it lies to us and this sin and pride hide deep in the, deep in the dark recesses of our, of our soul. So how does God expose it? How does God show us this sin and this pride and this monster living in us? Well, he uses the law. He uses the law, and the law is the topic that we're going to talk about today in Deuteronomy 4, so if you can go there, this is the biggest topic in all the Bible. It's through the whole Bible, and it is the most confusing and misunderstood topic in all the Bible, but we're going to attempt it, and we're going to try to eat an elephant. It's going to be hard work, so strap in. Here we go, Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 8. Deuteronomy, again, is where Moses is getting ready to go to the promised land. All the Israelites of the second generation are getting ready to cross the Jordan and take over. If you remember, the first generation all died in the desert. So Moses is warning them, and he wants them to get it right. And so he leads off with the law. Look what he says in verse 1. Now Israel... Hear the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord, your God, that I give you. Verse 5 is the same thing. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. So he's leading off with the law. And that's what we're going to study. 
There is so much that can be said about the law, but I got I to gotta parcel it out for you. So I'm going to give us like three courses in eating the elephant. The first course is about God's declared intent or the purpose of the law. The second course is God's hidden intent, how he uses the law without us realizing it. Then the third course is the dessert, what it looks like if we properly use it. So let's talk about declared intent. By declared intent, he tells Israel what the law is meant for. He tells them why they need the law. And I can say, why, does, why did God give us the law? And the majority of people in the United States would say, oh, oh, I know Pastor Week. If I do the law and I'm good at it, it's kind of like a stairway to heaven. It gets me up into heaven. If I do the things God wants me to do, I become a good person, right? This is known as moralism. Moralism teaches if I want to be a good person and accepted by God, I need to do good and I need to perfectly obey the law. No, it will never get you there. And when you say that's the purpose of the law, then you haven't listened to God and his purpose. So let me show you the three purposes of the law. The first one is found in verse 32 to 39 in chapter 4. Listen to what he says. Verse 32. And he's giving them a historical account of the nation of Israel. And he says, Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created human beings on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened or has anything like it ever been heard of? And what he's talking about, has God ever taken a nation, led them through the desert for 40 years, and rescued them out of an evil nation like Egypt? So verse 33. Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand? Verse 35, you were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Beside him there is no other. From heaven, he made you hear his voice to discipline you on earth. He showed you his great fire, and you heard his words from out of the fire. Why? Verse 37, because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them. He brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and bring you into their land to give it to you for you as an inheritance. As it is today, acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below and there is no other. So here is the reason he did it, to show off. Notice, they were before he gave the law, Israel was already loved. They were already accepted. They were already chosen. The law didn't make them accepted. They already were accepted. So then the law has two purposes. When they obey it, look at verse 40. Verse 40 says, Keep his decrees and commands which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. 
That's what verse 1 says. Look at verse 1 again. Now Israel, hear the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land. So the first purpose of the law is to show God off. Second purpose is so that they can have a great life. It's a gift to protect them and guide them and give them a long life. Third purpose of the law we find in verses 6 to 8. Third purpose is 6 to 8. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and your understanding to the nations, who will hear all about these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today. So you could say the law was, and still is, meant to be a blessing to God's people, to provide them a right path, so those outside of God's community will notice what they're missing. Will say, man, I wish I had God on my side. We are to make unbelievers jealous of what we have in God. You can look at the most famous part of the law, chapter 5. You guys know the most famous part of the law, we call it the Ten Commandments. So he gives the Ten Commandments, and I just want you to look at them real quick. Verse 1 of chapter 5 of Deuteronomy. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear Israel, decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. They really start in verse 7. Verse 7 is law number 1. You shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment is verse 8. You shall not have any idols. Make for yourself any image in the form of anything in heaven on earth. Third commandment verse 11. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. That's what that is. Verse 12 is the fourth commandment. Observe the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. 16 is the fifth. Honor your father and your mother. Why? As the Lord your God commanded, so you may live long, and it may go well with you. Six commandments, verse 17. Don't murder. 18, don't commit adultery. Verse 19, don't steal. Verse 20, don't give false testimony. And the last commandments, verse 21, don't covet. Don't be jealous of your neighbor's wife, of your neighbor's car, of your neighbor's house, of your neighbor's income. Don't covet. Those are the Ten Commandments. You know them as the Ten Commandments. Now consider them a second. I want to ask you a question and think on this. How would you feel if your children, the one that you raised up in your arms, and as they grew up, they consistently lived by the Ten Commandments? How would you feel about that? Would they be good kids? How about this? How would you feel if your children... When they grew up, they started worshiping gods that had eight arms and had trunks like elephants. Or if they swore all the time, wouldn't that be cool? If your kid used the Lord's name in vain all the time? How about your kids, your beautiful little kids that are made in your image, grew up, and they slept around with everybody? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't it be great if they stole everything and lied all the time and jealous of everybody and their thing 
wouldn't that be a great kid, or would you be ashamed of him? So tell me, are the, good, are the Ten Commandments a good thing? They're amazing. And if somebody lives by him, number one, God will be glorified. Like people say, why are your children that way? Because they fear God. They love him. It will go well with them. They'll never have to go to court. Probably won't be addicted to drugs. They won't have a wife that hates them. And that people will notice. That's the purpose of the law. What if a whole nation, what if a whole nation followed the Ten Commandments? Well, you'd never need police. You'd never need lawyers. And we know we don't, oh man, get rid of lawyers would be a great deal. You don't need private eyes. You don't need forensic cold case units because there'd be no murder. Most welfare and safety net programs would be unnecessary. You wouldn't have to lock your house. You could let your children roam the streets alone. There would be general peace everywhere you go. And how much money do you think a nation would save? So maybe the Ten Commandments are a good thing. So God gives us a law as a blessing and as a way to realize his ways are the best ways, but what happens is something inside of us comes out when they see the Ten Commandments and they see the Ten Commandments instead of being a blessing for all as a way to get glory for myself and show how I'm better than you. Instead of seeing the law as a blessing, we use the commandments as a competition to win the religious game. Pride wants to prove to God in the world, I can do all the commands and be good enough without needing God because I'm just special. Look at it like this. Preaching, having somebody stand at the podium to declare the word of God is meant to be a blessing for everybody. It's meant to be a blessing. But what happened if a man gets up there, and you may see me this way, as a man comes up here to, so you'll be impressed with him. It's kind of, um, you've seen it, it ruins preaching. Or how about being on the worship team? Being on the worship team is meant to be the place a person can help lead the congregation into the presence of Almighty God. But what happens when a person on the worship team sees it as an opportunity to show off my beautiful voice and my wonderful talent? So you will be impressed with me. Pride takes a God-given gift and spoils it. So that's why there's also a hidden intent with the law. This is our second course. The first course is that the law is a good thing. The second course is there's a secret purpose why God gave the law. He uses the perfect law to expose our inability to actually perform the law. So the law is meant to put us in our place. And silence the boasting of that monster inside. It shuts them up. Let me give you an example. How many of you watched when American Idol was good, like back in the day? Some of you are like, it never was good. But there was a time it was good because it had one judge on there, and his name was Simon Cowell. They don't have that anymore. But the reason why it was good is because what would happen on American Idol, you'd have these kids that would grow up singing in their homes, 
even singing in their church. And their moms would go, oh, my darling has a lovely voice. She's so good. You could go on American Idol. So they send them on American Idol, and they wait in line, and oh, they're so good. They're so talented. And then they stand up in front of Simon, and he goes, go ahead. Go ahead, sing the song. Sing the song. So they sing, and they sound, they sing like this. And Simon goes, oh, you sound like a bloody cat in the alley. Get off the stage. You're no good. And then the mom gets mad. How dare you say my daughter's not good? Because she's not good. The whole point of the American Idol, really the reason people watched it, was it, it kind of brought people down to earth and said, ah, that's the point of the law. It's to say, you think you're good and holy and righteous? You're like an alley cat full of fleas. And you're screeching. Stop it. So what you could say is the law tells the full truth of what a holy life looks like. Those who understand it, who really read it and let it go into their pores, will realize how short they fall of the glory of God because the law is perfect. That's why Jesus said, oh, oh, okay. You think you're good at the law? Yeah, I've never lusted after. You know, I've never committed adultery. Have you lusted after a woman? Well, yeah. Oh, then you broke the law. It's about being perfect. So what Paul does, I like how the scholars say the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, where the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, Paul reveals the purpose of the law in the book of Romans. Go to the book of Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And it's very clear, if you use the American Idol thing, it'll make sense. So he's revealing God's hidden intents of the law. So Romans 7, verse 7. So Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Actually, the law is a reflection of God's moral standards. So is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet. So what he's saying is he's saying, in my heart, I'm covetous. What What does covetous mean? Man, you know what it means. Don't you sometimes wish you had the house down the street or the car next door or the paycheck of the person in the office who has the title on his door? Don't you feel envy? That's covetousness. But you don't realize it until you read the law of the Lord and it says, thou shalt not covet. And then it shines a light on you and you're like, oh. <laughs> I do this all. I got a brother-in-law. He's, he's a funny guy. He's a stand-up comic. But he has a really big nose. He's a really big nose. So when I introduce people to my brother-in-law, I like to do this to him. I'm like, hey, this is my brother-in-law, Mike. If, when you meet him, whatever you do, don't look at his nose and laugh at it. So what do you think they do the moment they look at him? All they see is his nose. The law shows us all we are are sinners. Look at verse 8. 
Verse 8 says, but sin, sin is the condition of the heart, not the specific action. It's capital S sin. Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandments produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I heard one person say, have you ever been to a hotel and it might have a balcony and under the balcony there's a pool? And then if on that, on that balcony it says, don't jump in the pool. All I want to do is jump in the pool. Do you know what I'm talking about? All I want to do is jump in the pool. Why? Because it told me not to jump in the pool. That's what the law does. Now look at Romans 9. Romans 9, verse 30 to 32. Romans 9 says, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, meaning the Gentiles weren't under the law. They didn't really even know the law. They've obtained righteousness. Why? Because they got it by faith, meaning they believed in Jesus. They weren't, they weren't full of pride on the law. Why? But verse 31, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works, meaning they did it out of pride. They thought they could do it. They didn't realize the law was meant to show their inability. That's what verse 10 is about. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God, or chapter 10, verse 1. My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is they may be saved. He loves them. He wants them to be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. This is the person that you say, man, they're religious. Wow. Look at those Muslims. They pray five times a day. Look at those Jehovah Witnesses knocking on the door. They have more faith. No, that's not faith. That's pride. I had a grandma that would go to church every day, say the rosary every day, and when I said, Grandma, salvation is by faith alone, boy, was she mad. Why was she mad? Pride. I've been climbing the stairway to heaven, and you're telling me I'm not going to make it on my own? No. Jesus already arrived. Stop. I say this often. Religion is spelled D-O. Faith is spelled D-O-N-E done. So the law is a reflection of God's character, so it is good, but is also meant to expose that we are not. Look at the rest of chapter 10. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness with just faith. But Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. He did the law. He finished it. It's over. Believe it. So Matthew 19, you know the story of Matthew 19. It's a rich young ruler. You can read it on your own, verses 16 to 26. He says, what must I do to enter eternal life? And he's rich, and he's young, and Jesus says, all right, don't steal. I haven't, I haven't stealed. Don't commit adultery. I haven't committed adultery. And he goes through the whole thing, but then Jesus says, all right, sell everything, and then follow me. And he's a covetous person. So he's like, I can't do that. And he walked away. But what's interesting is 
Jesus didn't mention the first law. You shall not have any other gods before me. That was his problem. Money was his God. And it got in the way of him and God. And so then the disciples said, if this guy can't be saved, it's impossible. It's impossible. And Jesus said, you're right. It is. And that's the point. With man, following the law, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That's the point. With Jesus, you can find salvation. That's why James said, all right, you want to follow the law? Want to try the law? James 2.10. You can keep the whole law, but if you stumble at one point, you're guilty of all of it. That seems unfair. Here's what he's saying. Inside of you, capital S, sin lives. And then the law squeezes you, and out will come some sin. Maybe for some person it's lusting, another person it's greed. One sin shows that inside of you is sin. So that's why if you just have one sin, really you're guilty of all of them because it's sin, capital S, that condemns you, not the amounts of sins you've committed. You could put it like this. It only took one iceberg to sink the Titanic. All right, so... Let's go to our dessert. When you understand that, you can get to the dessert. When you have Christ in your life, you're changed. And then the law can be used properly. When you come to the realization you cannot fulfill the law, only Jesus can, and you accept his payment by faith, God pours grace out onto you. So here's the gospel. Three words. You want to know what the gospel is? It starts with guilt which leads to grace, which leads to a life of gratitude. Gratitude. You no longer see the law now as a way to promote self, but rather as a way to, out of gratitude, bring joy to your Father in heaven because he sent his Son to die for you. The law becomes a gift David even says in Psalm 119, 18, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. It's good. Instead of being a heavy burden and a curse, the law becomes a beauty and a treasure to behold. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked, who does not stand with the sinners, does not sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night, and as he meditates on it, he will be like a tree planted by a stream of water where he will have fruit in season, his leaf will not wither, and whatever he does prospers. Isn't that a good deal? It's a pretty good deal. It's a beautiful thing. So how does this happen? How does the heart of guilt change? Grace is a real power from God that transforms your heart. Listen to Jeremiah 31, 33. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. He's talking to, Jeremiah is talking about a time that is coming where God is going to transform everything after something happens. 
What is that thing that happens? A man by the name of Jesus comes, dies on a cross, and rises again. What's going to happen to people who believe in him? Jeremiah 33, 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. We just talked about it with the wine. With the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to you. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they'll know me. They'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. Why? For I'll forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. When you accept Christ's payment, you're already accepted. There is no more condemnation. You are not expected to perform the law for God to accept you. You no longer have to perform because you're already accepted. You want to. You want to do the law. Jesus becomes the apple of our eye because he forgave us all of our debts. All of our debts. He forgave. Forgiven much, loved much. So let's just conclude. That was the dessert. Man, I could have fed you a bigger meal. I didn't want you to get too fat, you know. So I wanted to just do three quick courses. But I want to give you a quick conclusion so you can understand. It's uh, that time of year, and it's that time of year, and we sit and send kids back to school, and they always ask this question, why do I need to go to school? Why do kids got to go to school? The answer depends on who you're asking. If you ask a kid, most kids will say this, why do you have to go to school? Because my parents like to torture me, that's why. I hate it. I hate school. It's a torture chamber. If you talk to parents, well, lazy parents, lazy parents will say, because I just want to get my kids off my back. I'm sick of them being home for the summer. I've had enough of them. They're making the floors dirty. Let the teachers deal with them. That's how lazy parents are. Our competitive culture would say this. Well, you go to school to get A's so you can be the valedictorian so you can get into the best colleges, get the best degrees, and make a lot of money. It's all about the A's. It's all about the grade points. That's what school's about. That's why our teachers are given standards, and you got to meet the standards so you get the A's. Conspiracy theorists will say, well, the brain... Wash the children into the world system. <laughs> Fatalists will say, because we have to go to school, and if we don't go to school, we're going to be arrested by the truant officer. You saw Little Rascals. Remember Little Rascals? The truant officer was always after spanking and alcohol. So each of these answers, however you answer them, is not the right answer. The original intent, the reason we send kids to school is so they can learn how to use their brain, explore who they are, and grow as a person. The school's original intent is for human advancement, excellence, and flourishing, not misery and torture. 
Most people, however, see it as a negative. Most people are negative. And that's how people see the law. If you ask people about God's law, they'll say it's just torture. Or it's religious brainwashing. And if we don't do it, God's going to send us to hell. And I better get A's. If I don't get A's, I'm not going to make it into heaven. No, no, that's not the purpose of the law. So when it comes to school, let's go back to school. What happens after a person graduates and gets a job? Do you ever talk about your grade point from that point on? Ever. Kelly, never. I'll go into my, my first job was a sales job. And I remember my first sale that I made. And here's how I made my sale. I'd like you to buy my product, but more than that, I got a 4.0 average in high school. You never talk about your grade point. Ever. Ever. And then when you get a little bit older, you go, man, I wish I was a little bit smarter in school. I could be so much farther ahead. And I, I was such an idiot when I was with, at school. You see school as a good thing. When you graduate from the law, when you accept Christ as your Savior, you no longer see it as a way to make it into the university of heaven because you're already in by faith. You start seeing the law as a blessing, not a way of getting A's with God, not a way of avoiding punishment, because there's no condemnation, but it's as a way to glorify and just say, thank you, God, for giving me my life back. Now I want to tell the world about you. Look at how Deuteronomy 5 ends. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Verses 32 and 33, Deuteronomy 5. Moses says, and remember, they're getting ready to enter the promised land. Moses says, so be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in obedience to all that the Lord your God has commanded you, so that. That's the key word, so that. You may live and prosper, and prolong your days. Who doesn't want that? And the land your God is going to give you. So, how was eating the elephant? Was it pretty good? Not too bad. 